Hi, I'm Ali Maldro, the host of A Public Affair on Tuesdays. You can listen to this show any day of the week, any hour of the day on the WORT smartphone app or on wortfm.org. If you love what you hear, click that donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference. Six foot six above sea level. I grab my mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication Good afternoon. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison. I'm your host, Ali Muldrow. And today we have the pleasure of talking to Samantha Allen about her new book. Back in March of 2020, This was right before lockdown. I had the pleasure of talking with Samantha Allen about her journey across America and the queer communities she found in rural places. She documented those travels in her award-winning book, Real Queer America, LGBT Stories from Red States. Samantha, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thank you so much for having me. A lot has happened since we last spoke, but it's a pleasure to be with you again. It's been a long three years, and you seem to have used this last three years to do, you know, do some really important work. Thank you so much for letting us talk to you about your book, Patricia Wants to Cuddle. Uh, Why did you decide to kind of shift as as an author, as an artist, to, to writing this style of book? Yeah, so I actually, you know, had the idea for Patricia Wants to Cuddle before I ever even wrote Real Queer America. It is a horror comedy novel and a satire of reality dating television. It's kind of like, you know, close to my fandom heart. And it's a weird, wild idea that, you know, I didn't know I would ever be able to place with a publisher. So my first book was very tied into my, you know, reporting work and and kind of what people knew me from. So, yeah, after that book did okay, I was just kind of like, well, let me shoot my shot and try to do something really weird. In the, like, pandemic world, I feel like this book felt like such a a nice kind of break from reality, like the break from reality that is reality TV. Um, Why was it important to you to, to... take this time um, to write something that's kind of imaginative and and fantastical and hilarious and uh, deeply, deeply interesting, but is a real departure from journalism. Yeah, I I wrote most of it during lockdown at a time when I think a lot of us were trapped inside binge watching reality TV. A lot of reality TV show fandoms kind of grew as people were like, well, I guess I'm going to watch every season of Love Island in a row now that I'm stuck in my house. Um, but, you know, I've long been a fan of the subgenre, and I think it says really interesting things about capitalism, consumerism, identity. Um, and I thought, you know, it, w- it was an interesting way to explore some of the some of the dystopian elements of this world in which we're putting ourselves on display and picking apart people on television and trying to simulate every aspect of the human experience for consumption and packaging. Um, yeah, the, it, so I wanted it to be really fun. I wanted it to be just like a fun horror romp, but I also wanted there to be stuff to chew on if you've spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, what The Bachelor has to say about 
pop culture. Yeah, I have thought a lot about The Bachelor in in part because I saw this really incredible art installation that was, you know, examining and dissecting, you know, these moments of humiliation, of public humiliation via um, reality TV. Do you have like favorite reality TV shows? What do you I feel like reality TV often gets kind of lumped into this guilty pleasure. Do you think of reality TV? Do you think of your book as kind of a guilty pleasure? I would love for my book to be thought of as a guilty pleasure, a pleasure of any kind, really. Um, I think The Bachelor is one of my favorites. I love Love Island as well. Too Hot to Handle, The Circle. I'm sort of, yeah, fascinated with these shows that try to gamify and codify things that in our actual social lives are much more uh, fluid and unobserved. Um, yeah, I'm fascinated with the ways in which they kind of turn, you know, the human experience into a sport. And then what it says about us that we want to watch that sport. You know, I don't think like watching The Bachelor is that far removed from like watching people fight in a gladiatorial arena. Like, I, I think that we kind of come to them for the same reasons. There's a bloodlust there. And so, you know, with the violence that my characters endure through the book, like, I wanted their the physical violence they experienced to be kind of a reflection of the rhetorical violence of all of us sitting at home, figuratively tearing them apart. Wow. I, I'm like, I, that's, that is a heck of an answer to that question. I, I wonder, like, I wondered while I was reading your book, how much of it was about your own experiences um, existing publicly? Um, because you, you have, you've existed pretty publicly. You've been out, you've been all over America. Um, what, what parts of this book uh, mirror relationships that, that you've had online or your experiences with, um, you know, being being a more public and known person and also having, you know, your identity out there for the world to discuss. Yeah, I'm an I'm an openly trans author and I am, you know, one of part of the the small but still significant queer and trans fandom of of shows like The Bachelor, um, which historically and, and currently I would argue have kind of propagated a very like narrow vision and version of womanhood. Um and so for me, like while the book isn't necessarily a trans book on its face, I, I don't have any openly trans characters in the book. It's definitely born from watching a show like The Bachelor and thinking about who are the others of of shows like this, you know, what are the kinds of, of, of bodies and who are the kinds of women that kind of exist on the margins of these spaces. So that's reflected in some of the characters and, and of course in Patricia herself, um, who is the monster lurking in the shadows of uh, my, my uh, fictional reality dating show, The Catch. I, I love the fictional reality show, the the catch, and I do appreciate. I think that this book has such a unique and quirky sense of humor, um, and I think it's hard to write something that is both, 
you know, horror and and has a, an element of, of comedic uh, potential, even just in the absurdity of reality TV and what we're forced to kind of reconcile in terms of our own consumption of other people's stories turned into. I really appreciate you saying um, turning, you know, our lives into kind of these sporting events. Were there moments in, in creating this book and creating Patricia Wants to Cut All where you really had to kind of decide what the tone and genre of this story was and how did you place emphasis um, in terms of what the, the characters were experiencing? Yeah, it, it did go through some tonal shifts. When I first started writing it, I thought it was going to be a fairly straightforward satire. I would have kind of stock characters who were easy to laugh at, and it would just kind of be like a fun, ha-ha, look at like how absurd reality TV is kind of book. And the longer I wrote it and the more time I spent with the characters, the more fleshed out they became, the more I wanted to redeem them, um, even if their redemption happens moments before uh, they're murdered. <laughs> no spoilers, the book has a high body count. Um, and yeah, I, I, and as I kind of grappled with that, I, I think the book did go through a shift in tone. I spent a lot of time listening to podcasts in which, you know, former cast of reality shows talk about their experiences and, um, you, you know, it, it humanizes them for me, certainly. And I wanted to kind of like, create a book in which we can laugh at the spectacle of this, but also maybe imagine ourselves as one of these people, maybe kind of vying for some attention or airtime or escape from, you know, traditional capitalist ways of earning money. Have you been surprised by how people have responded to this book or how popular this book is? Because people are excited uh, to, to talk about this book, to read this book. Um, it's, you know, it's a book in some ways that has a lot of like warmth to it. Um, and, and given the fact that it is, you know, there's a lot of murder as well. Um, have, you, have you been surprised by the appetite people have for, for this kind of story? And um, what does that mean for you as a writer, you know, doing these two books that are very, very different? Do you feel like, oh gosh, do you want to take kind of one and run with that as, you know, the kind of writer you are, the kind of thing you create moving forward? Yeah, I'd love to keep doing fiction moving forward, although I, you know, and I think I'll always have some element of humor, satire to most things I write, but I like to stay a moving target and just kind of like explore different things. I never want to do the same thing twice. I think I would get too bored. And I, I'd say with, you know, the popularity of the book, I certainly feel vindicated by it just in terms of like the long struggle of uh, writing it in a vacuum and, you know, trying to find a, a home for it. Um, you know, I sort of knew in my head people would hear like queer bachelor horror satire and immediately like want to read it. Um and, and, you know, it, it took some doing to, to get it into the hands of readers. So, uh, yeah, I, I feel just enormously relieved, I suppose. And then I see the popularity of like a TV show like Yellow Jackets or something. And you realize there's this huge appetite for like feminist queer horror that's not afraid to also be like 
dark and violent and gory. Um, I I love that that space is thriving and I love kind of landing in the middle of it somewhere with my little buck. Oh, I feel like the the like the feminist rage of this moment um, is is palpable all around the uh, all around the world. And I think that it would be interesting to think about the kind of pushback you get as an author and an artist um, in comparison to cis artists or cis authors. Um, how have people who have had a negative response to Patricia Watts to cuddle? What, what I have found no flaws in this book has anyone. Oh goodness. I try to shield myself from reactions. Um, I think, you know, I think people want to know a little bit more about how the island that they film on operates. Um, they, to be a little elliptical about it. Um, and I think we'll have a little bit in the paperback version later this year to kind of uh, uh, respond to that and, and spoon feed a little bit more exposition than was in the hardcover. We'll see how it goes. But yeah, you know, uh, largely the response to this has, has been positive. Yeah, I would certainly say, though, that like as a trans author, I'm like, always aware in my head of like oh someone might just like hate me for who I am and not not the book but I haven't encountered any of that with this title certainly there's a lot going on right now in terms of book bans and censorship if you're just joining us you're listening to WORT 89.9 FM I'm your host Ali Muldrow this is a public affair and full transparency y'all I am coming to you live from UW Hospital today I am hanging out with my with my dad who is in the in the hospital addressing his health a little bit and so um you know, I get to get to have this conversation while surrounded by my family. Um, Samantha, I I think, you know, as as book bans have become more and more of an issue, um, particularly books that feature LGBTQ mem- members of the LGBTQ community. Have you had anybody talk to you about, you know, your book being banned or the violence in your book or who should or who should not be able to read your book? Who is the audience you want? to read Patricia Wants to Cuddle. Oh, goodness. Uh, anyone who is mature enough to handle violent c- content, I would say. But I haven't heard of Patricia being banned. It's definitely targeted as a kind of adult uh, uh, horror fiction. Um, but I would say that like, it, it definitely disturbs me to see um, kind of the this happening, I would say. I'm sorry, uh, there's a hairless cat that has uh, jumped on my head and it is my hairless cat. Um, yeah, I would say that like what people who are trying to propagate book bans are doing is trying to create this really sanitized, anodyne, acceptable, narrow window of like what people can read. And that's just not the function that literature is supposed to serve. Books are supposed to be these these shadowy corners where we can find ourselves and explore rich, complex, interesting, nuanced territory. So it's been really disturbing to, to release a book at this time. And I'm just like pained for my colleagues and peers who are having their books, you know, that are targeted at younger audiences, like censored because younger audiences need to have access to complex queer stories. 
Thank you so much for speaking to that. And I'm so glad that nobody wants to ban Patricia wants to cuddle. Um, I just think like, why, why not let us all have like that, that moment of like play and fun and imagination that you put into this book. She just wants to cuddle. How can I? <laughs> I know. What's with that? Um, you are just tuning in. You're listening to WORT. We're talking to Samantha Allen, who is the author of the horror comedy novel, Patricia Wants to Cuddle, and Real Queer America, LGBTQ Stories from Red States. Samantha is also a GLAAD award-winning journalist and editor previously covering LGBTQ plus stories as a senior reporter for the Daily Beast and as a staff writer for Fusion. Her writing has been published by the New York Times, Rolling Stone, CNN, and more. Samantha, you are like a big deal. You told us a little bit before the show that they are thinking about turning your book into uh, a, a, some type of TV show, movie, miniseries. I'm not exactly sure. Tell us about the the, the next phase of, of Patricia Wants to Cuddle. Yeah, so it's been optioned to be developed into a TV series. It's kind of in that in that process now and i'm excited to see you know with the potential adaptation what directions they would take it i sort of like um have a hands-off approach to adaptation and that i sort of think adaptations are sometimes worse when authors get too involved in them i know stephen king famously disliked kubrick's uh you know masterpiece uh the shining um, so yeah, I'm, I would say I'm, I'm enthusiastic about the adaptation and just kind of like excitedly watching the directions they want to take it. Cause, um, I'm excited for, you know, it to become somebody else's baby now. I, I think authors being involved, I think of Margaret Atwood in The Handmaid's Tale, or I think of I'm thinking of Stephen King, I think of uh, Shawshank Redemption. Um, so I'm like, oh, I wonder how he responded to that masterpiece. I am curious, do you think about like who you would want to perform the characters? Who Do you think about the actors who will play um, the people that you've imagined? Oh, definite fan casting happening in my head, you know, from the moment like negotiations and talks about a TV movie deal started, I was already, you know, five years down the road, you know, imagining who I would want to join the recurring cast of season two. Um, (laughs) I won't name specific names uh, in case things are already in process, but... (laughs) know who's like top of who's somebody you would love to see it at just like one one actor that you're like I would love it if this person found their way into my into the world I've created okay so in my show the catch there's one man that all the women are competing for and in the book he's kind of a sleazeball he bills himself as a tech entrepreneur even though all that happened was his dad gave someone else seed money and he kind of glommed onto it. Um, I would love for him to be played by Adam Brody. Adam Brody, if you're listening, <laughs> please. Um, I love that casting by you, Samantha Allen. I'm like, I think that's um, that's right on. What 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 was it like for you to get that call? What was that moment in your life like when you found out? Hey, not only is this book successful, not only are people excited to read it and thrilled by it, but also other artists want to 
contribute to this story, add to this story, expand upon this story, make sure this story reaches more people. Um, what did what did that feel like? And and what does it look like for you to negotiate that? Like what what this is your intellectual property. This is your baby. You've spent the the last few years working on it. What does it look feel like to you to to hand it over to somebody else and wonder what they're going to do with it? Yeah, it's definitely surreal, real dream come true moment for something like this to be in in the works. Um, when I was writing, I definitely had an eye toward adaptation, although I wanted the book to be able to like stand alone as its own experience. So, you know, I was thrilled when it got that response. And then, you know, when you're talking with production companies, you're thinking, where will this end up? Who will see it? What's your vision for it? Um, it, it and you know, it, it you do feel a bit protective of it because it's like it's my it's my book, it's my baby. I've spent you know years of my life with it, and now I'm I'm handing it away. But I would say the longer that I've been writing, the longer that I've been edited by other people the more I try to adopt a kind of more generous approach to it of like when I first started writing, I would like painstakingly go through every edit and like really think like, do I really want it to read like this? Is my editor really right about this? Um, and the longer I've gone on, the more I've been like, well, I'll hit accept all changes and see how it looks because, you know, it's, it's my editor's book too. Um, and that's kind of how I feel about the adaptation. Like the book will always be there and however the adaptation ends up and whatever angle and spin it ends up taking on the book, like it'll be its own beautiful thing. And I love that it's connected with people because it cuts across such a wide cross section of topics, queerness, horror, television, like there's rich territory in there. And I'm just glad other people want to kind of dive into the swimming pool with me. So no spoilers, but just to give our listeners a little taste of the presence in the forest, uh, is it possible for you to read a little bit from page 64, um, starting at Amanda Says Outside? Yeah, so Amanda is kind of a fashion influencer. She's one of the final four women on this show, and the book switches between her perspective and three of the other women who are finalists on the catch. And um, in this scene, Amanda has just finished taking a picture of herself <laughs> at sunrise to uh, post on Glamstapics after the show when she gets her phone back. Amanda stays outside to enjoy the fresh air a moment longer. Flipping the camera over, she opens the touch screen to a grid view of the most recent photos and selects the first. It blinks to life on the small LCD screen, orange light wending its way through the trees. Amanda standing there in half silhouette, hand on her hat, looking appropriately grateful for the day. It might be good to use a quote as a caption instead, something from Maya Angelou maybe. But then she notices another silhouette in the image, this one smaller, darker, and more distant, wedged in a narrow gap of light between two trees. The shadow is so black against the orangey backdrop that at first it looks like a section of the touchscreen has gone dead. But no, something is in the forest. Even though it's off in the middle distance, it looks nearly as tall as Amanda, a thick, multi-limbed shadow, its edges blurred with motion. 
What is that? Amanda mutters under her breath. Instinctively, she takes a step back toward the safety of the house. Maybe it's a trick of the light or a fly flew in front of the lens, but the shadow looks human-shaped, right? It's so distinct. Amanda swipes right on the touchscreen. In this next picture, her hands have changed position, but the shadow remains in the same place. An urgency rises in her chest. Was someone watching us out there in the woods? Oh, thank you so much for for sharing that with us and sharing this book with our with our audience here today on WORT 89.9 FM. I want to talk to you a little bit about the title Patricia Wants to Cuddle. Um, I, I think that that is, you know, between the title and the cover, there is this uh, immediate kind of, um, oh, like camp element to to the book. Um, will you talk a little bit about why you wanted to call this book Patricia Wants to Cuddle? Also, I heart the name Patricia um, to all the people out there who have like five grandma pats, me too. So let's let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, Patricia came pretty early on, I would say. She's my monster lurking in the woods. If you look at the cover of the book, you might get some clue what kind of monster she is. Or I can tell you that it's a Pacific Northwest setting. So think about some local folklore over here in Seattle. Um, but yeah, I just love the name Patricia. It's it's timeless, but it, it evokes a certain nostalgia. It's a little nod to Patricia Highsmith as well. Um, yeah, and from the beginning, I wanted it to have that campy, fun horror element. It's fitting that we're talking just as uh, the movie Megan came out in theaters, just this total fun blast of a horror movie. I think people are kind of craving that. And it fits with some of my favorite horror, which is like Friday the 13th movies and the, the original Halloweens, just these like exuberantly fun slashers with high body counts and fun characters to watch die. <laughs> I think one of the reasons I enjoyed your book so much is because the pandemic has forced me to examine my relationship with fear, um, what I'm afraid of, what kinds of risks I'm willing to take. Um, and this book gave me a new vehicle to think about the things that frighten me, surprise me, shock me. Um, how did your relationship with fear influence the way you wrote this book? I would say I'm definitely afraid of death. Um, so it's, I think gravitating toward horror in that instance isn't actually like a paradox. It's actually kind of a way to process and deal with those feelings. You know, you co you confront yourself with the reality of it is a sort of, I don't know, self-imposed exposure therapy, I suppose. Um, and yeah, I would say I'm definitely processing that in the book. I, not to get too deep, but, you know, years ago in college, one of the tricks my therapist taught me for dealing with anxiety was like, if I'm afraid of something happening, I should just accept that it's going to happen. And then I'll be relieved if it doesn't happen, um, if that makes sense. So if I'm on a plane and we hit turbulence and I'm scared, I'm just like, well, what would happen? Oh, the plane would go down. Oh, I would. I would die in the plane crash. And then if you accept, if you just kind of follow it down the road, instead of staying at the part where you're terrified of what's going to happen, um, 
you can just kind of defang the thing, I suppose. So I, you know, I have characters in here who all respond differently to the monster uh, and to the threat in the woods. And I think one of my favorite characters kind of gets to a point where she's like, would, would death really be all that bad? Would death be that bad compared to just being able to experience something visceral and real? Um, and yeah, that was an interesting kind of nuanced place to end up. I'm I'm surprised to think about like mortality as uh, a catalyst or fear of mortality as a catalyst for this book, in part because the the body count is high enough to think like, oh, maybe it's maybe you have a little bit more of a casual relationship with um, slaughter. Um, and so I, I, I really appreciate that one that you I love whenever anybody brings therapy um, into a, a public space and, and talks about like mental health as a, a part of the process. So thank you for giving us that free little bit of therapy advice. Um, from from your therapist um in in processing kind of your relationship to fear i also want to talk about your relationship to humor um and what it means to have a darker sense of humor especially as a feminine person especially as a woman i i think of myself as somebody who's got a, a pretty dark sense of humor um and i think that you know I, I've been I've I've had people describe my humor as morbid or you know have these kinds of judgments around what it means to to have that that kind of humor. I have perceived you in our conversations as a really deeply sensitive person. Um, so I'm I'm curious what fuels your humor and how did you find comedy um, in in this story that really could have had a, a real sincere element of tragedy, both in looking at reality TV um, and kind of how sad our our obsession with that can become and what that can mean for people's lives, um, but also in the you know in the in the slaughter of these people. Um, how did how did you find the space for humor? And and I gotta say, thank God you did. I, thank you so much. Yeah, I feel like you know you can't not laugh at our current moment uh, is like a way of processing it, I suppose. Like with like the influencer and reality TV economy, especially, you know, we're in this space of like rising wage inequality and climate disaster and all of these terrible things. And yet we've created this shrine to this imagined like perfect, beautiful life that people are supposedly living on Instagram. And I think you can't see that and and not laugh at it if you want to stay sane, I suppose. So yeah, Patricia was a kind of an attempt to poke fun at that that disparity, to uh, laugh at that experience. And I've always been interested in exploring humor in my writing. I would say it comes through in my writing more so than in my personal life or my relationships with other people like I do definitely want to take things to a dark grimly funny space as soon as possible but I've sort of learned to temper that instinct in social settings because not everyone wants to go there but when you put it in a book it can just be in this package that you put it in the world and it's a socially acceptable place to (laughs) make uh, you know dark jokes about um, uh, about death. Oh, I so appreciate like the difference between how comedy reads versus how comedy presents, you know, in in person. And and Samantha, I think, you know, 
it's obvious that you have a, a, a really sophisticated sense of humor in reading this book. When you've talked to people about the book, can you kind of tell who gets the joke versus who doesn't? I always think when you're writing a book, it's got to be, you know, there's when you're telling a joke, people either laugh or they don't. They react or they don't. When you say something humorous, you you can gauge how people are going to respond to it. When you write something, um, I, I'm curious, how do you gauge whether or not the, the, the joke or the comedic components are going to land with the audience? Oh, gosh, it's definitely like um, throwing a dart in the dark, I suppose. Like, you know, I have a sense for things. I, I know like where a punchline will land in the passage I read. I know that it would get a guffaw out of a lot of readers to think about this kind of like white fashion influencer wanting to use a like a Maya Angelou quote to uh, caption her just totally like uh just pointless sunrise picture of herself with her 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 new hat um so like i i have an eye for like when those moments will happen but you kind of never know how it's gonna um how it's gonna land you know like i definitely have seen some readers just read it and be like well that was interesting i don't i don't i don't quite get it um and I'm okay with that. I sort of wanted it to be designed to be a book where you could really just key in on it and like be right in the middle of its Venn diagram. Or you could just be like, well, that was unlike anything I've ever read. <laughs> Moving on. Um, yeah, I wanted it to be able to kind of work on both of those both of those layers at once. But when I do see readers who are like totally on my wavelength of like, we watch reality TV, we sort of hate ourselves for watching it, but we can't stop. So the way we deal with that kind of guilt is by endlessly processing it and analyzing it. Um, yeah, when I hit people in that strike zone, it's it's really clear. I, I feel like I deeply identify with what you just said. And I'm curious about, you know, if you if there are books that you researched to write this book, are there books that inspired you around this book? Are there books that you kind of compare Patricia Wants to Cuddle to? Um, there's one book that I kept thinking of because I started to think of this book as as a, a really feminist book. And I'm curious if you think of it that way. Um, but it's in the in the book, one of the major plot points is like, throwing bad men out of airplanes um and it I, i'm like that book relaxes me i'm not gonna lie that's where i'm at in life and so i think like you know um thinking about this book as 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 a feminist book and as a book that is is you know stands out in a series of ways what are the books that you would compare it to or books that you read um that you think maybe fueled some of the way you imagined this world this reality tv show yeah, so there are, you know, other books out there that are kind of exploring fictional reality shows. I didn't read them while I was writing Patricia because I was terrified of like, oh, being subconsciously influenced. Like right after I, I finished reading Patricia, I read uh, Kate Stamen London's What One to Watch, which is kind of a, like a romance novel about a, a, a plus size lead of a bachelor style show. I really enjoyed that that book a lot. But I, I tried to kind of like stay away from reading reality show satires. I would say it's primarily influenced by uh, by horror fiction, also by horror films. Um, a, like a tonal reference cinematically would be something like Happy Death Day, which I thought was like a fun 
uh, slasher that kind of towed that line between comedy and gore uh, on a literary wavelength. Um, the books of Grady Hendrix are definitely an influence, but also just like kind of um, non-comedic horror authors like um, like Brian Evanson were a big influence. I wanted it to be scary and funny. And so I think you kind of have to read books that are both to be able to have inspiration to do that mix. Do you think about what, are you writing again already? Do you know what's next in terms of your next book, your next project, your next, your next artistic adventure? I, yeah, I'm writing a, a supernatural romance, I think is the easiest way to categorize it um, right now. That's what I'm working on. It's definitely still in that satirical space, but maybe a bit more earnest um, than Patricia. Is there, when you think about Patricia, the reality show, The Catch, um, I started thinking a lot about like the reality shows we do watch versus the reality shows that we may want to watch. Do you think about kind of, you know, the, the things in deconstructing a reality show, do you think about the potential of that format to look at people differently or to use reality shows um, differently than, than we do? So what is, you know, the opposite of The Bachelor or the opposite of keeping up with the, Kardash- keeping up with the Kardashian? What is, um, you know, reality TV that is not designed to make everybody feel like they're not good enough and don't have enough? Um, is, that, is that an option or, you know, is this format, um, inescapable because it says something so true about who we are and what we're really interested in. I think that there's an inherent violence in it that's inescapable to take anybody, you know, a three-dimensional human being with, you know, complex thoughts and feelings and present them in an entertainment package. You're always going to flatten them. You're always going to edit their life or how they're presented. I don't think that means that we shouldn't make it. But I think that it means that it's it's always kind of an ethically compromised thing to do. But like, I don't think it's possible to go through the world or to create entertainment or to do anything in a purely ethical way, right? So like, I, I'm interested in the way in which reality shows are trying to kind of like navigate that and deal with that instead of ignoring it altogether. Um, I know MTV's Are You the One did like an all LGBTQ season. There's lots of conversations in the Bachelor fandom with the Roses for Everybody campaign about having more body diversity on a show like The Bachelor. There's long been campaigns around The Bachelor to have more racial diversity in the cast and in the leads. So yeah, I don't think the the solution to the inherent unethicalness of reality television is just to dismantle the whole enterprise altogether. There's reasons we watch it. It serves a social function. It's kind of a mirror for our civilization, our life, our thoughts. I think meaning and value can be derived from them, but I'm I'm interested in people kind of pushing the boundaries of what it can say and of the kind of, of voices and, and experiences that can be shown through them. 
I get curious about the the platform of a reality show. And to be honest, at this point, I start to think about what we consider to be reality. Um, I, I think, you know, the fact that Donald Trump um, was a reality TV star before he was president, uh, you know, gained this tremendous following from a show called The Apprentice. Um, I think, you know, these these shows are really influencing us in terms of what we believe is real and what is not real. Do you can you talk a little bit about the manufactured components of both your show, The Catch um, and reality TV more generally, like the, the, I, the fact that reality TV isn't reality? Yeah, I mean, I do think that kind of concomitant with trying to diversify and make reality TV more inclusive, we do need to just work on media literacy among like the viewers of these shows. Cause you know, in, in the bachelor fandom specifically, there's quite a lot of people like the, the game of roses podcast and others who are aware of the, the kind of facade of reality television, who are aware that's what, what's presented on our screen may not be how something actually happened with kind of 100% verisimilitude. And yet there are so many viewers of these programs who, uh, kind of, believe that what's happening is just a straight one-to-one representation of reality and who uh, respond to contestants as though like what's shown of them on screen is you know the end all and be all of who they are and that leads to really kind of egregious like harassment and bullying and that kind of thing so yeah I think there's some responsibility on the audience too to realize this, these are these are real human beings who have been packaged down into sound bites. Like who they are in real life may not be who they are on your TV screen. Did you ever want to be on a reality show? I talk I talk about this with my partner all the time because there's this show like Lost and Alone, and I actually think he'd be really good at it. Um, and. I, I, when I was a kid, I grew up watching The Real World and Road Rules and really wanting to be on those shows. Like, no perception of the consequences of being on something like that. But thinking, like, oh, that would be such a, a cool thing to get to participate in. Would you participate in reality TV if somebody wanted to follow you around with a camera crew for a while? Would you be interested? Oh, God. Uh, uh, no, is my <laughs> immediate answer. Um, you know, like as a trans woman, I'm definitely immediately suspicious of anyone who would want to film my life. I think uh, years ago I was in, um, you know, like a, a documentary about my transition with a couple of other subjects, but I only agreed to do that because I really trusted the filmmaker and I thought that showcasing my experience in that way would, you know, help people and lead to greater understanding. I think when you sign up to, um, you know, something that's like created by a television network, um, you're, <laughs> that, that trust is kind of harder to find sometimes because there's, there's so many considerations at play. Like there's, advertisers there's you know the network there's the executives then there's the producers and your life is just going to go through so many layers of filtration before it, it ends up reaching anyone yeah i would say i'm a i'm a hard no on reality tv 
It's so interesting, too, because I think you think of some people on reality t- TV and a lot of them, you know, when you think of like the Kardashians as maybe kind of the ultimate reality TV family who've been on TV for decades at this point, um, you think, oh, they must have a lot of say and autonomy in what gets shown and what does not get shown. Um, but then I think about why I watch a show um, that is re- reality TV and I think about like, there is the part of it that is manicured and I'm always trying to look past that. I'm always trying to see the edge of the, where the real reality begins or where the person is actually able to exist as a flawed, more genuine version of themselves. I think that's one of the reasons Patricia wants to cuddle um, is so satisfying is because you get to some of this inner monologue that I think we, we crave deeply to understand like what's happening in, in somebody else's head. Um, can you talk a little bit about the role of the inner monologue for, for characters, the role of, of getting in their heads beyond what is being shown or what they're projecting or the selfie they're taking, what they're thinking and feeling. Yeah, I found it deeply refreshing to be able to have protagonists who were who were contestants on the show. Um, because when we watch these shows, I think if you're, you know, again, if you're like a, a media savvy viewer, you're aware that most people are going on reality television for some kind of career opportunity or boost to a social media following. Um, and yet, d- you know, depending on the format of the show, that's almost never mentioned overtly in the the text of the show itself. You know, in fact, you can be penalized on a show like The Bachelor for not being there for the right reasons, which is a euphemism for you're here to become an actor or a musician or uh, an Instagram star. Um, So, like, what I found refreshing about being able to write from the perspective of these characters is I could give them all complex and interesting motivations for why they would want to appear on a show like The the Bachelor. One one girl wants to start a digital ministry. Amanda wants to have, you know, a a fashion line. Um, Vanessa wants to be a model. Um, so like I, I was able to kind of explore their different relationships to do they actually want to be with the catch or do they actually care about this other thing or are they somewhere in a space in between where they're like, I could see it working with him, but I'm also like interested in doing doing this thing. And I I, I kind of I find it fascinating to explore that because people are demonized on some reality shows for like having those aspirations, but I don't think those aspirations are bad. I think you'd probably be foolish to put your entire life on pause if you didn't think you were going to get something out of it. I think that there's an idea of the kind of people who want to be on reality TV uh, and why certain kinds of people would want to be on reality TV. Um, And I'm curious, like, how did you either lean into those stereotypes for some characters or avoid them with others? Um, How did you you know, utilize kind of our our public sense that one of the reasons I think we're okay tearing reality TV stars apart um, is because we, we, you know, think of them as kind of vapid and self-involved people who, you know, won't won't notice or care anyway. Um, How did you, you know, lean into certain stereotypes and manage to humanize characters as you were writing this? Yeah, I think it's possible to have fun with those stereotypes without 
totally flattening the characters and while also sparking some self-interrogation as well. You know, like I said, when I started the book, I, I think everyone was going to end up being more flat. And I was I just wanted it to be kind of an us versus them. Let's laugh at these influencers kind of deal. And the more I processed and the more I kind of thought about the experiences of people who have been on these shows, the more the more human I wanted to make them and the more I empathized with them because what they what they want isn't really that different from what anyone wants. Yes, it's attention seeking, it's public, it's, you know, it's it's needy, it can be vain, it can be narcissistic, but fundamentally what a lot of people who want social media fame want is uh, an escape from the nine to five, they, they want out and like, who doesn't want out, you know? Me writing a book that, will, you know, hopefully become a TV series. Like, of course, I'm I'm trying to create my own parachute from, you know, the, the churn and kind of the need to just kind of endlessly exert yourself for like, you know, basic necessities. So yeah, I, I get to a point with reality show contestants where I'm like, it's fun to laugh at you. You definitely want a lot of attention, but also underlying all that, what you want is really not all that different from what I want, which is, you know, an escape. Oh, I so appreciate like the the compassion you have for for the the characters in the book, but also for the folks who, you know, are are on reality TV. And I think because of social media, all of us engage to a certain extent in attention seeking in, you know, uh, you know, making our lives, you know, public. And I guess my, my last question for you is really about privacy. Um, what is the stance of Patricia wants to cuddle on privacy? I do think like because of the, the monster that is Patricia, um, there is this, this, this shadow, this, this hidden kind of, component of of the book that isn't taking selfies and you know trying trying to reach startup is trying to eat um so talk a little bit about how patricia wants to cuddle positions us to think about privacy yeah you know patricia my monster lurking in the woods i think at one point in the book is referred to as a vision of life differently ordered. And I think like monsters and ghouls and goblins and the shadowy things we imagine, they're things that we come up with to scare ourselves, but they we also come up with them to imagine like, I think increasingly in a modern world, we turn to them as a way to imagine something ancient, something outside of all this, like a way to live and engage with the world that, you know, isn't contingent on on capital. Like, I think it's fun to think about, you know, the interview with the vampire reboot. And we love to imagine vampires because, well, they're ancient creatures. And like, what's significant in our lives is just a total blip to them. Their relationship to the world doesn't have to be structured by the same things our lives are. So, yeah, you know, this book takes place on a remote wooded island with a monster who's been there for quite some time. And I think the book asks us to interrogate like our fantasies of escape, but also to grapple with the impossibility of it, not to be too much of a downer, right? But like, you know, there we we can't get out of the clutches, but we can imagine and maybe we can start to work toward a world where like we can be a little more unplugged or we can just kind of like be in a forest and look at a mushroom on a log and I don't know, 
not post about it and just experience it. I love the idea of of Patricia as another way of being. Um, and I love the idea of looking to nature for an alternative to what we're creating. I can't thank you enough for joining us today on WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Maldro. This is A Public Affair. The book is Patricia Wants to Cuddle. The author is Samantha Allen. Samantha, thank you for joining us again on WORT. I can't wait to interview you again and read whatever you write next. Thank you so much. This has been a pleasure.